Here we go. So, KGNU listeners, welcome to this special edition of Black Talk. Frequent listeners know that this program typically airs on the second Thursday of each month at 8.32 a.m. However, today's segment is truly special. It will live up to that title. <laughs> and I am thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Thomas L. Windham. Thomas is someone for whom I feel just deep affection and friendship. We really got to know one another when we were members of the Conference on World Affairs Committee on Racism in the USA. Thomas's Vite will tell you that he is and has been a psychologist, an educator who has held a variety of faculty positions at universities, including University of Colorado Boulder, Denver University, Naropa, Metropolitan State University, and Nebraska Wellesleyan University. Um, Thomas has been an NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research, a senior advisor to the director of the National Science Foundation, and president of Boulder Valley School District's Board of Education. What his vitae will, may not tell you, or will not tell you, is that Thomas is a long, long time Boulder resident. He's a member of the Boulder County NAACP's executive committee. Um, he is a jazz aficionado. There's a lot more, but Thomas, we only have an hour. But did I leave out anything essential? No. Okay. okay. <laughs> I just wanted to check. Great job. Great job. No, well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm sure most, if not all of our listeners are familiar in some way, shape or form with the 1963 March on Washington. The 60th year anniversary of the march was on the 28th of August, so just passed. And Thomas, you were there. So in 1963, you were there. Yes. So what shape, what did you feel when you knew that's where you were headed? I I felt that I was going to participate in an opportunity to to support what what I'll now, the liberation from oppression of Black Americans in particular, and all Americans in general. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I was excited about that opportunity. No, I'm guessing you were. Yeah. Now, so again, the year was 1963, as I just stated. You were there. Yes. Yes. What have you? What have you wanted your children, your grandchildren, and just young people in general? What have you wanted them to know about the march? Have you discussed it? And if so, what have you shared? Yeah, I've discussed it with my children and my oldest granddaughter mm-hmm. and talked about the march as, as having been essential to responding to the failure of particularly the Supreme Court and the nation to uh, uh, affirmatively put into action practices that would evolve from Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954, and the uh, particularly desegregation in the South, but also the Jewish segregation in the North 
of American public schools and housing. I, I also shared with them and continue to share with others that the march was, as you just stated, the jobs and freedom and point out what I understand and accept to be the importance of the economic foundation for a reasonable, credible uh, life of meaning in these United States of America. Very well put. You know, how do you talk to them, again, children, grandchildren, young people, how do you talk to them about the relevance of the 1963 march in their 2023 lives? That's an, that's an excellent question. I, I, I believe in, in history and the, in the study of history, understanding it, and understanding not only that, that there was a march, but why there was a march, what led up to the march, the 100 years before the march, because exactly 100 years to date of before the march was the uh, Emancipation Proclamation as announced by then-President Abraham Lincoln. And here we are 60 years later, still struggling, still fighting for the exact same opportunities, the, the exact interest in removing ourselves from being subordinate to the politics of whiteness and the uh, expression of white supremacy, particularly white male-dominated supremacy in, in our government throughout all of our institutions. It unfortunately is ubiquitous throughout all of our institutions and communities in this country. And that because opposition to the legislation that came as a result of the March on Washington, we only have to be more studious, be more strategic, and be more united in, in our ongoing struggle to achieve full citizenship and enjoy the benefits uh, of uh, life, I, I guess I'll leave it at that, that this country offers to its elite citizens. Okay. You know, I don't want to belabor this point, but I'm going to phrase it a little differently and ask for your feedback. You know, I'm sure you're aware that contemporary generations of young people, perhaps more specifically Black young people, and I'm generalizing here, often feel often feel there's too much emphasis on what happened versus what's happening now. And I just wanted to get your thinking on that. Well, you know, I, 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 I've heard that and continue to hear that. Uh, history uh, serves multiple purposes. One, in, in the socialization of our citizenry. So we have family history, we have individual history, we have community history, we have national, international history. Uh, so um, there's a reason for that. And that is because what's going on now is, is informed by what happened beforehand, year, years ago, decades ago, sometimes centuries ago. So, um, you know, I like to talk about history in terms of one, his story, uh, which is the history that we see being reintroduced into uh, public education, particularly in the state of Florida, Texas, in many states where with the book banning, with, with the curriculum restrictions, with the classroom restrictions, 
which tried to either deny true American history as it occurred by not only omitting it, but by um, uh, putting forward and supporting the revisionist history that sometimes leads to the statement that enslaved African-Americans benefited from, from slavery, from being enslaved. So, so we, need to know, we need to know our history, because if we didn't, how would we know we've been paid for? And indeed, we have been paid for more than once. Well, I was going to say several times over. Yeah. So, so for me, yeah. the, the effect of that history on our, not only our current thinking, but on our, our imagination mm -hmm. uh, for how to bring forward the future is what I call historicity. So we need to know his story. Okay. We need to know our story. And we need to know historicity. I don't oh, think can, can I just say a comment about, about that? Please. Uh, one of the things, one of the reasons why, a different reason why history is so important is because we, we, we learn about a, a world, a universe outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. We learn about other people. We learn about other cultures. We learn about other nations. And it is important that we do that because that type of learning encourages and, and nourishes empathy, the ability to empathize. And if we can't empathize, we can't forgive. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, for me, forgiveness is a big thing. Yeah. Never forget, <laughs> but, but, but try to forgive. Got it. No, that's um, whew, lot, a lot there, you know, a lot to think about there, Thomas. You know, thinking back, so when I kind of roll the bus back, I'm backing the bus up. Okay, I'm getting on the bus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so in 1963 or before, were you what one might consider politically active? In other words, did you consider yourself, were you viewed or perceived as an activist? Yes. Okay, okay. And so what were you doing? What were you active in? I became particularly active when I was starting my college career, my undergraduate career. And I left New York City and went to the state of New Mexico to attend New Mexico Highlands University, which okay. uh, at that time and still now was a blessing. However, it was 1961 and the, 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 the tone towards, at that time, Mexican-Americans and, and Negroes. Okay. It's a message that advised us to be tolerant. And I was very anti-tolerant. So uh, I had many conversations with faculty, with deans, and with students about what I learned to be called agency, that we have agency and we must use our agency to address situations which bring anxiety, which bring distress, which bring harm, which get in the way of things that we need to do in order to be successful students at that school. Right. So one of the things we did, well, I was invited to participate in what's called what was called the Don't Care Singers. And, and at that time, you know, folk music was pretty big with Odetta, Joan Baez, and, and whatnot. So the Don't Care Singers sang protest music. So we went around the school singing protest songs and held concerts singing protest songs. And when the 1964 elections rolled around, when politicians would come to our university 
if we felt that they were not on the side of justice, then we would be out in front uh, protesting their appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those, one of those was a, a person running for governor, the then Edwin Meacham. Uh, he he also appointed himself to the Senate when a senator died. And while mm-hmm. he was a senator, he was one of the five non-Southern senators to oppose the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So I was going to say the name rings a vague bell, and maybe that's why. Yeah. So 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 uh, you know we oppose that. I also was an integral part of the campaign for Senator Joseph Montoya, uh, who defeated uh, Senator Meacham when he tried to run again. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, northern New Mexico, the politics was just out there. <laughs> and the fact that I was able to participate in Montoya's campaign speaks volumes to uh, the levels of acceptance that we had we being Black folk, African-Americans, then Negroes, in the Mexican-American, it was then called Mexican-American community in northern New Mexico. There was a a, a scene I'll just share with you. No, do. It came to Las Vegas, New Mexico, the home of New Mexico Highlands University, to give a campaign speech. And the local Democrats introduced us, and we talked and whatnot. And he said, I want you to introduce me. I said, okay, I'd be happy to. And he said, but you're not to speak a word of Spanish. And I said, okay, um, not that I could do it you know, fluently. He said, I get you to say it in English. I get David to say it in Spanish. And then I say it. So they've heard it three times before the afternoon's lunch. <laughs> and it sounds like it worked because he was elected. It worked. He was, <laughs> uh, yes, he, he was elected. And in fact, uh, a couple of years later, invited me to join him in Washington, D.C., which I didn't do because I, I needed to finish school. So, Thomas, let me let me kind of place you on the map here. So in 1963, where were you? Where were you living in 1963? Where were you exactly? Well, uh, in 1963, I was living in Las Vegas, New Mexico. And uh, a couple of weeks after the, the march on Washington, I started my junior year at New Mexico Highlands University um, in August. In fact, the summer of 1963, I was in New York City, which is my home. Right. And that's where I was getting a little confused. But, you were both a college student, but you were also, didn't you work in a factory? I did. I worked in the factory for multiple summers. Uh, mm-hmm. The factory in Brooklyn that subsequently moved to Binghamton, New York. And okay. in Binghamton, New York. And that was uh, a benefit. Uh, I guess you could call me a a, a legacy summer summer employee (laughs) because my my father worked in the factory and that's Uh why I got the job. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) I've had a few of those. No, no, I understand. I just wanted to get that right because I thought I thought when you caught word or at least there was discussion about the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. I thought you were in New York. Absolutely. And I thought you were working in the factory. So I just, I wanted to get that clear in my in my own thinking, in my own mind. How did you learn about the march? I mean, how did that, how did that information come to you? You know, um, honestly, I don't remember how I heard mm-hmm. about the march, uh, but, but uh, it, it probably was through conversation in the community, 
Uh, mm-hmm. May have been television, uh, yeah. all of the above. Okay. So uh, when I uh, re- realized that I had an opportunity to participate in the march, I was in the factory in Brooklyn when I heard uh, okay. it was announced that that the United Auto Workers was a sponsor of the march, and that those uh, who were were interested, motivated, and felt that that they could go uh, were welcome to go. Okay, so you were working in the factory in the summers, but you were a member of the UAW? Yes, uh, it was a union shop. Okay, Uh, okay. After you worked in this union shop for so many weeks, uh, it was required that you join the union. Got it. Yeah. Okay, so Thomas, what were your expectations once you decided to attend? Did you go alone? Yes and no. I I was the only one from my shop that that went that got on that bus that I knew, uh-huh. and uh, then there was a there was another gentleman who worked in, in the factory, and uh, I I knew him, and so we got on the bus together. Okay. Sat okay. next to one another and spent the day together. Oh, did you? Okay. So tell me this: Why did? <laughs> I, again? Let me share a private belief. Oh, no, go ahead. I don't I should say fantasy. I believe that he w- was on that bus seated next to me uh, because my father requested that. <laughs> <laughs> so a chaperone of Yeah, I think I was chaperoned. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that so resonates when I think about my own parents and my own family. So tell me this then, since we're talking about family. What did what did your friends, family, your coworkers think about you going, if you know? So in other words, did folks state it? I'm sure you probably heard some things at home, but did you hear some things on the shop floor? Did you hear things from your friends? What what did you hear? Uh from from my family was support. From okay. friends with support, curiosity, uh, enthusiasm, uh, from the neighbors, because because I lived, uh, it, I, you know, it wasn't called a project, but um, uh-huh. it, it, anyway, it, it was a seven twenty-one story buildings. So, you know, the neighbors in my building, and, and uh, we knew one another. They knew what what was going down, and right. so they were excited. And were waiting for me to come back and share the experience. With yeah, all the story. Okay. So what shape did your anticipation of attending take? In other words, were you excited? Were you scared? Were you anxious? What what were you feeling? Um, you know, I, I, I was feeling um, like, like uh, I had an opportunity to do something that was going to make a difference. Okay. And um, the closer it got, the more anxious I got. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I, when when I got on the bus and particularly didn't recognize anyone other than my chaperone, <laughs> I said, "Oh boy!" So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah. of course, there there was also a level of nervousness in the community because I believe it was three days before the march, Medgar Evers was, was murdered in his driveway. Yeah, um, you're and, yeah, and, and, and you know the the freedom riders were still riding the freedom buses, particularly with CORE um, and the Congress of Racial Equality, 
<laughs> and those buses were being attacked and people on the buses were being attacked. So uh, I went with a little fear and trepidation, but at the same time, you know, I consider myself a foot soldier, you know, uh, and, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, and right. It's not going to be a picnic. So uh, let me ask you this, Thomas, you know, because in most of the photographs that have been published or publicized over the years, you know, folks were seriously decked out. You know, they're wearing suits, they're wearing dresses, you know, Sunday best hats and shoes. What did you wear? I mean, I've got to ask the important questions. What were you wearing? I do not remember. <laughs> 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 I had to ask. I'm going I to ask. Ask. You're the first one to ask when you're insightful. <laughs> I had to ask. <laughs> you know, my father was a tailor, so you know, I'm always kind of focused. <laughs> I'm always focused on the sartorial question. Yeah. But had you ever been to Washington D.C. before then? No, I had not. So that was your first time. Yes. What time and from where did your bus to D.C. depart? I'm thinking we left Brooklyn, and I'll underline thinking. I left okay. the house probably around 3 o'clock in the morning. Ah. It was the, These buses were chartered by the United Auto Workers. Was the bus full? Yes. Okay. And who else was on the bus then? So they were other members of the UAW from other yes. shops. Yes. It was a, it, it had to have been a central location. Because mm -hmm. uh, there were there were people on the bus. In fact, I would assume that that with the exception of my chaperone and me, all the other people came from uh, uh different employment situations. Uh they were not employed where I was working because I didn't recognize them. Well what was the racial mix? So when you got on the bus, well, I don't know if everybody was on the bus when you got on, but once the bus was full or full of everybody who was going, what was the racial mix? I don't remember exactly, uh, Michelle, but but my sense is, is that, that it was probably 90 plus percent Black. Okay. Okay. What was the, and this is based on your perception, what was the gender mix? Mostly male. Okay. And age? I would say uh, I was probably the youngest one on the bus. I would say the ages were probably in the mid-30s on up to like mid-50s. Okay. So I'm not going to ask necessarily about sexual orientation or gender identity, even though, even though, and it's important to underscore this, um, I believe he was 51 years old then. So you had an openly gay Bayard Rustin who was one of Dr. King's closest advisors, who was one of the primary organizers, if not the primary organizer of the march, um, along with A. Philip Randolph, who was a labor unionist and civil rights activist. And he led the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which, as I understand, historically was one of the first successful Black-led um, labor unions. Mm. So, Thomas, the bus ride from New York City to D.C., based on my recollections as a kid going back and forth, is approximately four and a half hours? Yes. Like approximately four and a half hours without stops. Yeah. So did you all stop along the way? No. Oh, because I was going to ask you, did you just kind of, this was a straight express. I okay. remember just being a straight ride, a straight shot into D.C. and a straight shot back to New York. Back. Okay. So on the bus, 
did you all sing? Did you play cards? Did you eat? Did you sleep? What What was the vibe on the bus? I slept. Because when they were still in, in, in August, you know, it was still dark when, when the buses left. Uh-huh. The first, I don't know how many hours, uh, at least one or two hours of that ride, it was dark. Um, so it was, it was, oh, I'd say early morning when we arrived into D.C. Uh, okay. Somewhere I'd say maybe around, oh, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, another question that may seem small, but I think it says a lot about just the overall vibe on the bus. Was the bus driver black, white, or another race or ethnicity? I, I don't remember. You don't remember? I was just curious about that. You know, what advice, Thomas, were you carrying with you on that trip to the march? What advice had you been given? I don't recall having been given any advice. You know, I, I had been given my lunch. <laughs> so we were all advised to bring our lunch. Bring some food. Bring mm-hmm. food, because that might be all we had before get that day. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. So, so we, we, we had our food. Um, you know, knowing my family, my mother would probably have said, be respectful and to be mindful. She had her three R's, religion, restraint, and respect. So what did you see when you entered or as you entered the district? As you entered the city, what did you see? I was in a state of disbelief. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, the streets were lined with Black people. And oh, my God. Came into the bus. And, and, and some were, were holding like their hands in prayers. A couple were crying. You know, it was just it, it was just like, wow, these people are really, 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 really <laughs> glad to see these buses come into this city. And oh my I could not believe the, the 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 poverty that I saw as the buses came into Washington D.C. As as you pointed out, helped me point out, it was my first time being in D.C. And all mm-hmm. I knew about D.C. was these marble buildings, right? Or these office buildings, you know. And so I, I was not expecting to see the the, the the level of quote comparative poverty in in D.C. as we arrived. So that's as you in. yeah. And, and 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 it said, wow, you know, we 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 really got to get this right. listening to Black Talk on KGNU 88.5 FM, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. And today we are speaking with Dr. Thomas L. Wyndham, longtime Boulder resident, as he recollects, as he takes us on a journey back to 1963 when he attended the March on Washington, the March for jobs and freedom. So upon your arrival, did any fears or anxieties increase or somewhat subside, if you had any at that point? Well, you know, I, I think 
I'll speak for myself. I certainly had them. And I would say that most, if not all people had them because we were not invited. <laughs> okay. This was not by invitation. Uh, this was understood uh, as a protest. And, and some, some of the organizers uh, of the march, i.e. John Lewis, i.e. Walter Luther, uh, used yeah. terms like revolution. Uh, yeah. So, uh, um, you know, we, we, we knew that the administration under President Kennedy was not, had not welcomed the march. In fact, was trying to persuade the organizers of the march not to come. Then the, the organizers of the march were then persuaded to not use the Lincoln Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, as the staging okay. or the speaking. Uh, and another auditorium was recommended for the march, which was refused. And we later learned that the organizers of the march insisted on a public address system. Uh, uh, which, so uh, there was a public address system throughout the, the lawn, and, and I'd say at least a quarter of a mile back behind the reflecting pool. Okay. Um, and we learned later that the, the I, I guess I'll say, emissaries of the government were monitoring that and were prepared to cut it off at, at, at any point during any of the speeches. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, also, you know, the, the police were organized to suppress any mob violence or display of disrespect for the Capitol. So, so you, you know, going into that, that, yeah. that we, you know, it, hopefully, you know, let's, let's get this right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because otherwise, what could be a beautiful day, a beautiful awakening, a beautiful affirmation can turn into something ugly. And you know what parts that would go on the news. Yeah, no, absolutely. So how did you feel kind of joining that sea of, I think it was, the estimation was 250,000 or so oh, yeah. people. Yet at the time, that was estimated to be the largest march D.C. had ever seen. Do you remember how you felt? What, you know, mm -hmm. place us with, you know, take us with you. I, I, I don't know where we were mm -hmm. with respect to, to the march. But the way the bus is docked, and then the, the groups on the bus would get organized, be given instructions and given signs to carry uh, and what have you. So, and then directed. So there were, there were many, many marches ahead of, this, ahead of us and there were many, many behind us. But Got it. I saw that sea of people, you know, all my anxieties and fears dissolved. You know, I said, you know, I just felt good. Yeah, selling that embrace. Yeah. No, I understand that. So the attendees that were around you, at least, because again, we're talking about thousands on thousands of people, yeah. but were attendees at least based on your perception, Thomas, and your vantage point? Were attendees older? Were they primarily younger? Did you see many children? What was the racial ethnic mix of the folks, as I said, at least from your vantage point? Uh, yeah, I'd say that um, the majority of the people were young adults to middle age. I don't recall seeing children marching, although I, I know from, you know, publications about of the march that there were many children there. Uh, there were many children on the sidewalks. Uh, okay. Between the marchers and cheering the buses, 
and, and from windows, you know, uh, cheering, cheering on and also holding signs. In, in terms of, of ethnic racial mix, there were, you know, the estimate is, is well over 200,000. Mm-hmm. And, and of, of that number, eight out of 10 of the marchers were Black. And, okay. and from my vantage point, I remember everybody being Black. So Got it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you know, what words, you know, because there were many words spoken on that particular occasion, there was a lot of music. On that occasion as well, what words or what music was most memorable to you, or perhaps that shifted? And what was more memorable to you then, and you took away then, maybe has shifted somewhat. But what words were most memorable? What music was most memorable? Yeah, you know the music. I I, I know from you know journalists having reported what the music was. Okay. Um, the speeches were most memorable. Okay. And, okay. and, and there were two that, that struck me. And, and neither of them was Dr. King's. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. First one was John Lewis's. Right. right. And right. the tone of that speech was, was, was very confident, very clear, and very demanding. Okay. And, and basically the message was it's past time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the speech was, was amended because... Yeah, I've read that. Yeah, yeah. it was amended. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I learned later that the part, one of the sentences that was taken out of the speech, with his agreement, of course, was that the, the legislation crafted by John Kennedy and on his desk is too little too late. <laughs> we come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. Unless unless Tile 3 is put in this bill, there's nothing to protect the young children and old women who must face police dogs and fire hoses in the South while they engage in peaceful demonstrations. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, as you say that, I I remember reading about that. Mm -hmm. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. But the second speech that, that really struck me was that of Walter Luther. Fellow Americans, I now have the opportunity and pleasure to present to you a great American, Walter Luther. And tell us who Walter Ruther was, because everybody may not be familiar with Walter Ruther. Walter Ruther is a, a union a union organizer. Right. At the time, he was president of the UAW, the United Auto Workers Union. President of the United Automobile Workers of America. And was also, I think, the vice president of the AFL-CIO. Mm-hmm. Chairman, chairman, I think. Anyway, he had it's a name that I grew up hearing, yeah. and I, yeah. you know, knew that this was a very powerful person. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 From Detroit, and uh-huh. he, he was he was a fireball. And, was he? Oh yeah. Hello, Americans and friends. I am here today with you because with you I share the view that the struggle for civil rights and the struggle for equal opportunity is not the struggle of Negro Americans, but the struggle for every American to join in. And uh, basically, and he was one of the few white speakers. 
podium. And basically what he said was that this is an American problem, that this isn't a Negro problem, that this is an American problem. And, and, and I, you know, I went and printed a speech, you know, (laughs) that made that much of an impression. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He said it's the responsibility of every American to share the impatience of the Negro Americans. For 100 years, the Negro people have searched for first class citizenship. I believe that they cannot and should not wait until some distant tomorrow. They should demand freedom now, here and now. It is the responsibility of every American to share the impatience of the Negro Americans. You know, and and then he talked about the importance of jobs. And he said the civil rights fight is a moral fight. And we need to join together to march together and to work together until we bridge the moral gap between American democracy's noble promises and its ugly practices in the field of civil rights. You know, and our slogan has got to be fair employment, but employment within a framework of full employment so that every American can have a job. If we can have full employment and full production for the negative ends of war, then why can't we have a job for every American in the pursuit of peace? And so our slogan has got to be fair employment, but fair employment within the framework of full employment so that every American can have a job. Yeah. So, so he was talking stuff, and, and then he said one sentence. He said, uh, and, and we have to go past talk. And he said, a lot of people talk about brotherhood, and then when they get home, they drop the brother. What I call that there is too much high-octane hypocrisy in America. There is a lot of noble talk about brotherhood, and then some Americans drop the brother and keep the hood. (laughs) Very memorable. (laughs) Very memorable. But he he laid out you know, uh-huh. what had to be done. Now, exactly. the King's speech, I learned, uh, uh, you know, like a day later, because that <laughs> one that was telegraphed all over the world. Right, right. King was talking about the moral imperative. Uh-huh. And, and, and the part that people remember from the King's speech is like the last three or four paragraphs. But the first nine or 10 paragraphs was was a, a statement, a synopsis of American history, particularly American history with respect to not only the treatment, the Negro, but of all oppressed people in America. And, and, and he used the phrase that America had written a check, but, the, but that it had not cashed, you know, yep. and, and, and whatnot. So he, you know, I, I think it was a legitimate indictment um, of American social practice, which included legislation. He was speaking directly to the Congress, directly to the American people, and was representing particularly the people of the South, which was, you know, his domain. So on the, you know, and and it was beautifully laid out. And, you know, I I came to learn, you know, how it it, it resonated so with America. Because essentially, if you take the Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation, and what's called his I Have a Dream speech, 
they all saying the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Thomas, let me ask you this as we get close to wrapping up. What do we get wrong? What do we get wrong about the March on Washington for jobs and freedom? Because at this point, you know, when I think about a lot of the photographs, when I think about the, well, it's usually Dr. King's, the latter part of his speech that gets played again and again, there, there is kind of one enduring kind of perspective, if you will. And what do we get wrong? I'd love to hear your sense of that as someone who was on the ground. I mean, as somebody who was there. Well, having been there, I think I, I think it's very difficult to not just with the march, but with a lot of historical, significantly historical, you know, events, to 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 get the sense, the to experience, you know, to to convey the emotion, uh, yeah. to convey the conviction, to convey the the sense of why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when I look at pictures of the march on Washington. Uh, basically, I see a bunch of people sitting around the reflective pool listening to speeches and music. Okay. And, and I suppose maybe that's why Hajj Malik Shabazz, Malcolm X, called it a picnic. So, but in fact, before the march, he called it the farce on Washington. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. But, but he showed up. <laughs> he showed up. He was there. You're right. Yeah. There. Yeah. But he showed up. So, you know, uh, the commitment, the, the expression uh, and, and the anxieties that are overwritten by commitment to, to achieve an ideal, to achieve justice for all Americans. You know, the, what the thought that comes to mind for me is like, you know, you look at a war movie and you don't see the horrors of war, you know. But so, so, so that's hard to convey. I understand that. But what we don't understand is we had that march because of the failure, not of the Supreme Court, but in part because of the Board of Education uh, uh-huh. versus uh-huh. the board, the 54 decision was unanimous, okay? Right. But it didn't, it didn't say how this was to be implemented. Uh-huh. And, and then after the resistance from particularly the Southern states was expressed, they came back in 1955 with the all deliberate speed solution. Yes. Which authorized any resistance, particular those in the South, to take their time to do whatever they want, because it, it was understood that Brown versus the board did away with Jim Crow. But so they they that that then led to okay, we can't have separate but equal, but we can have white flight. We can have various laws that prevent voting. We can have this, that, and the other, which required the uh, I think it was I, I forget what year the, the voting rights bill came. 64 and 65, right? Right, because the Civil Rights Act was 1964 and the Voting Rights Act was 1965. Right, in response to all of that. But Uh when I go back to history, Uh we had that march because uh, of uh, um, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall and the attorneys of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Okay, that's how we got to Brown. Okay, and and that was the strategy to use the courts. And when it was uh, uh, observed that 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 was still being resisted, then we went into civil disobedience. Okay, Uh, so so uh, one, 
there's lessons to be learned about legislation and, and, and what legislation can and can't do and, and there, how there will always be opposition to that. As we, we just saw when the Supreme Court ruled on the case with the University of North Carolina and Harvard's admission practices. Exactly. Okay. So, so, so uh, you know, there, there are these organizations. And in the case of, of the Michigan, North Carolina, was the Students for Fair Admissions that, you know, that, that is directed by Ed Bloom, who is right. director for the Project for Fair Representation. And, and I know we're wrapping up, but we got to watch how, how language is used, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. So, so I would say we have to be studious. We have to be strategic. And we have to know who we're up against. We have to know their history. And we have to know what motivates them to do the things that they do, mm-hmm. the way they do them. And we well, have know, to get them to know us. Because if they don't know us and we don't know them, there's, there's no chance at understanding, no chance at empathy, and no chance at forgiveness. So I just, you know, where you began, you know, talking about this whole idea of empathy. I'm sorry, you were going to say? I just say we got to organize, stay organized, <laughs> organize, 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 talk to one another, talk to one another, you know, disagree, but keep talking and vote, 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 vote. Oh. You know, I won't say vote Democrat. I won't say vote Republican. I surely won't say vote for any of these independent parties, despite who the candidate is. But I, I will say vote against hate. You know, so if we all vote against hate, I think we got a chance. You know, let me ask you one last question. Let me kind of squeeze this in. How would you say, Thomas, how would you say the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom continue to influence you? How does it or how has it? Because, again, that's kind of one of those watershed moments. How has it influenced you? How has it influenced your life? Well, you know, at the time of the march in Washington, I did not understand, nor I don't know, I could not forecast <laughs> what that would mean 60 years from now, from then, I mean. But um, I knew I wasn't alone. You know, I knew I had agency. And, and, and I, I, I knew that there were many people of all origins, of all so-called races, uh, uh, of all religions who had had the belief and the faith in the possibility of one nation under God, if we want to say that, but for all, you know, and, and, sure. and where, where no group would, would be subordinate to a, a, a small number of people who control the agenda, who control the narrative, and through controlling the economics and other institutions, you know, economics, control economics, control entertainment, control education, control labor, control law, control politics, control religion, sex, and war, <laughs> you know? So, so there are these people. Now, 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 now that's not to say that, that, that there aren't the dissidents. You know, for me, they're dissidents. I'm sure for them, I'm a dissident. <laughs> but there, there, there are those. So the thing is, is for me to spread the word, you know, we, we have we have capacity, we, we, we have agency, and together we can get this thing done. Well, you know, we, we look and talk about anniversaries fairly regularly in this country, and I want all of our listeners to remember that 
August 28, 1963, 60 years ago, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom took place. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom has really, I asked you, Thomas, how it's influenced your life, but it's influenced each and every one of our lives. Whether we're aware of that, not aware of that, it has. The provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 really reflect the demands of that march. And again, both pieces of legislation have influenced each and every one of our lives. And as we saw with the recent Roe versus Wade decision, what we saw with the recent University of North Carolina, Harvard decision, you, you can't rest on that. You can't depend on that always being in play. You can't depend on that always being followed. So, Thomas, I want to thank you for being there in 1963. Thank you for being here today, coming on Black Talk and sharing some of your reflections, your thoughts about then and now with, with us. I want to take this opportunity to thank you, not only for inviting me to, to be on Black Talk for this special opportunity, but also for all the work that you have done and that you continue to do and to keep talking Black in the face of all of the opposition that we get to not do that. <laughs> I'm going to take that to the bank. <laughs> so, thank you. so thank you very, very much. And we will look forward, Black Talk listeners, we will look forward to next month, our September show. And uh, again, Thomas Wyndham, thank you for joining. Thank you. for listening in on Black Talk today. Our guest has been Dr. Thomas L. Wyndham. And Dr. Wyndham marched us back to August 28, 1963, when he attended the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. <laughs>